what I loved so much about reading novels was that it was this magic act that uh, you're, you're reading something that isn't true, that someone's made up, but you believe it when you're in it. And I thought, ah, oh, that's what I want to do with my life. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Marcus Suzak is one of Australia's great storytellers. Aged 45, he's the author of six novels, The Underdog, Fighting Reuben Wolf, When Dogs Cry, The Messenger, The Book Thief and Bridge of Clay. Marcus has a flair for phrases and a talent for tales. He also really loves other people's books and regards reading as an essential part of a good life. Marcus, it's a delight to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. We'll see how we go. Hopefully I can, you know, do your program justice. So tell me which authors you read as a kid. Who, uh, who shaped you? Yeah, well, it's funny. My mum talks about me uh, walking around our household basically before I could read, just carrying books around and eating the corners of them. And, uh, and they were probably, well, <laughs> I, I, I know them to be, uh, you know, probably, we had every Dr. Seuss book known to man uh, or woman. And, uh, and so that was probably what I started off on. And, and yeah, so I read pretty, I wouldn't say voraciously, but I read a lot. And because I was the youngest of four kids, I got everyone else's books as well, and uh, I even had, and it's it's really funny. I've even got I, I've got pictures of my own son now who just always falls asleep reading, you know, and he always ha he's either on top of the book or the books on him, and he'll he'll read anything, uh, you know, ranging from I even got this old picture book version of you know, it was like this children's bible actually. You know, and just because, and the stories in that, I used to read as a kid as well. Uh, and uh, I kind of, so I would kind of read across all sorts of different things. And and then when I was a teenager, the books that really made me want to be a writer, I guess, were, you know, I can pare it down to S.E. Hinton, where, you know, so many kids I know have had this experience growing up in this country and other countries too, where we were issued The Outsiders, That Was Then, This Is Now, and Rumblefish as uh, books to be read in Year 9. And, uh, and I think The Outsiders has changed a lot of people's lives, having read them at exactly that right age. And, uh, and I think it was one of her later books called Taming the Star Runner. When I was 16 years old, I read that book, and the 15-year-old character in that book was getting a book published, and I thought... I want to be that guy. And, uh, and I think that was the moment <laughs> I decided I wanted to be a writer. And um, without me just going on and on and on about it, I, I'll just finish by saying I think what, you know, underneath just that 
very direct thought from seeing a character in a book doing it. I think what I also realised, what I loved so much about reading novels was that it was this magic act that uh, you're, you're reading something that isn't true, that someone's made up, but you believe it when you're in it. And I thought, ah, oh, that's what I want to do with my life. How did it shape you being the youngest of four? It made me really ambitious, I think. Uh, I, I grew up with an older brother. So in order, I had two sisters, uh, then a brother and me. And we were sort of in groups of two. Uh, this, my sisters were uh, seven and six years older than me. My brother's two years older than me. So there's this sort of, you know, there's a little bit of a, an ocean between, you know, the girls and the boys. And so I grew up a lot with my brother. But, you know, I remember, and I laugh about this now, and I, uh, and, uh, but I remember very distinctly things like my brother and sisters playing cards with my parents or playing, or they'd be playing a board game and it'd always be, you're too small, right? Or you're too, you're too young, you won't get it. You'll just get in the way. You can't play this, you're too young. But the, the seminal one was I still remember my dad going horse riding with my two sisters and my brother and I had to sit in the car with my mum. And I'm sure I was sitting there just stewing, going, one day I'm going to show all you bastards. And, uh, and, and so I think, <laughs> I, I think it sort of made me, uh, like, you know, the, the youngest one often just wants to do what the older kids can do. And, uh, and so I think it did make me uh, pretty ambitious for, you know, for my whole life. I mean, but only in the things that I really loved. And so as a, as a kid, I, I loved playing rugby league and I, I loved English at school. I didn't love math, so I didn't care that much about it. But English I wanted to do well in, you know, and I wanted to do well when I played football. And I wanted, you know, so I was able to sort of, uh, one of the, the things that I've realised, uh, you know, in my lifetime of writing and everything that I've done is that one of the gifts I've had is that I've never been naturally good at anything. I've always had to sort of, or, or there was someone who was already better at it than me in my brother or my two sisters. And so I always had to sort of fight for it a little bit. And I think, um, you know, without casting that as anything miserable, like, you know, to me, that's just been a real gift. And so I'm really happy to have been the youngest of four kids. And uh, whether I've showed them or not, you know, that's another story. Uh, we'll come back to uh, some of that, uh, the themes of fighting for things. But I'm curious about um, the role that World War II plays in, in how you think about stories. In some sense, it's, it's the big story of our age. Uh, but for us, it's the tales of our grandparents or our parents as, as children. I, I, mine, I think like yours, were born just in the tail end of, uh, of World War II. Uh, to, to what extent do you think World War II still, still shapes us? It's obviously at the heart of your best-known book, the, the, the Book Thief, there. Uh, is, is it still the big story for, our, for us? Well, I think the first thing I should say about that is that, you know, at the time we're talking to each other, you know, we're talking about Victoria being under curfew and as soon as I hear the word curfew, I think of World War Two, and uh, mm. you know, and and it's just got this dark, 
that word just has this dark cloud of a, um, you know, just it, it's this dark cloud that sort of just has an ominous, you know, feel to it. And, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily, you know, that I think it's the story of, of you know, an age or I think, you know, so much of that can depend on, you know, who you are, where you come from. Uh, and I know that so, but I know that in my case, you know, most things I, I should sort of, you know, talk about is that for me, World War Two as a topic or a theme or even an idea or a thought was always secondary to just actual stories themselves. And I've often said to people that if my mum and dad grew up in, you know, two different countries in South America or one of them grew up in South America, one grew up in Australia or New Zealand or whatever, you know, my stories would be completely different. My gift wasn't necessarily that my mum and dad grew up in Germany and Austria, uh, mostly after World War Two. Most of their stories were actually about after the war and, uh, and because of their age. It was also one of those things where it was easier for me to, to write the book Thief because of how old they were during that time, because they were really young children. Uh, you know, they told stories about just being kids and there wasn't necessarily any feeling of responsibility, you know, for what happened in that time as well. And uh, so for me, I'm lucky that, you know, both of my parents, you know, did have these amazing, you know, enti you know tough, interesting, funny childhoods and uh, were still able to say to me, but, you know, whatever hardships we had, that was nothing, you know, compared to what other people went through in that time and people, obviously, who died, people who were sent to their deaths, you know, and they were able still sort of to put that into some kind of perspective for me, even when they talked about bombs coming down through the night and, like, my mum saying she came up out of the ground and... Uh, the whole ground was covered in snow, but the sky was on fire. I was always drawn to these sort of opposites. And, uh, and you know, my dad, who grew up in Austria, and he was seen as, you know, a good school student. He was good at sport. And so they were going to send him to a special school to make this, you know, great, even so-called better class of Nazi citizens. And, uh, and his parents refused to let him go. He still talked about these two men in these big coats who came to his house and he listened in while his mum said, no, you're not taking my son. And literally a week later, his dad was sent to World War II to, to do one of the worst jobs that you could possibly be given, um, you know, which was, you know, he basically was putting fires out, you know, from crumbling buildings while someone, someone would be putting out you know, would be spraying the guy who was putting the fire out with water, you know, so he wouldn't catch on fire. And he'd already been in World War One. He was an older man. And, yeah, you know, my, but my dad was still able to say, but, geez, I was lucky. So to sort of sum up, I would just say the most fortunate thing for me was that my parents had these ridiculously interesting stories and, uh, you know, jaw-dropping stories, really, 
but they were both really good storytellers. And when I say were, I mean, they're both still alive. And, but they were able to tell me these stories in a way that was really meaningful to me. And, uh, and again, because I was the youngest, and this is the advantage of being the youngest, I think, is that I got to spend the most amount of time with my mum and dad uh, at a time that was actually really useful to me. So I didn't get their attention when I was, you know, a baby up to four, five, six, seven years old because of all the older kids. But when I was a teenager, my sisters, had, you know, sort of moved out one after another. My brother was off doing other things and I'd go on these long bushwalks with my dad or I'd go to work with my mum or to work with my dad and I'd say, can you tell me that story again about this or that, you know, that <laughs> happened? And that's why I tell people... Uh, you know, if I'm speaking at a you know bookshop or a festival somewhere, don't be afraid to repeat the same stories because that's how us younger people uh, get to you know get to remember them and to to memorise them so that we can tell them to our children. There's uh, a number of signature qualities that uh, I think of you as having as a, a writer. Uh, uh, one of them is uh, your the extraordinary starts to your book uh, books, the uh, the way in which the messenger begins with the uh, the bungled uh, bank robber, uh, and the other is the importance of uh, of narrators in your book. Uh, what made you choose to have death be the narrator of the book thief? Did that take a long time in coming or was that there from the very genesis of the book? Uh, this is a really, like, this is one of my favourite stories and it just shows a couple of things about writing. And one is that I'm not necessarily a hugely creative person and, but, I, but I'm willing to spend time with something and I'm willing to let an idea wait you know, for me and or I'm willing to wait for the next idea that will, will help it. What I had when I was writing The Book Thief originally, when I was writing The Messenger, I, I just, my computer uh, basically got a virus and I couldn't use it anymore. And so I wrote, started writing on these, those, you know those really thin full-scale pages that you can buy, the really cheap ones. And uh, it, the paper's yeah. almost as thin as cigarette paper. And, I was writing on one of those and then I just tore like off... aerograms. Yeah, and um, I, I tore off a page and, um, and I just wrote this story. Or was, I just wrote the first page of an idea called The Book Thief. I don't know where it came from, but it was about a girl in modern-day Sydney and she climbed into an apartment and she stole a book off the shelf. And I just left it. I just let it sit there and uh, I don't know, I wish I still had that page. It may be somewhere. And I let that sit and I'd also had this idea about that I might write my mum's story about, uh, you know, her childhood. And which it only struck me quite recently, actually, that she used to talk about how Amer the American soldiers occupied Munich and they had their own radio station and all the locals would listen to it because they loved it because they loved all the American music. And, uh, at and the problem was they couldn't say Munich in the German way, which was um, München. Okay, they, would, they called Munich, instead of saying that, they called it München. And the lunch hour radio show was, was, was called Luncheon in München. And, uh, and so, uh, which is, 
like just a, a really, I love that little story. And originally I was thinking, that's what I'm going to call this, call that book. You know, it's the worst title for a book in the history of the world. But, um, and so, but I had this idea that I might write uh, a sort of biography of, of my mum's childhood. And, and then I started to think, oh, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll write a novel because I'm not really good at just sticking to the facts. You know, I'm not really good at, I'm always asking, what if it happened this way or what if it happened that way instead? And, uh, and making things up. And then something, something else happened. And I was working at a school and I was, I was working with these kids, these three kids who were really sort of keen on writing. And at lunch, I, I worked with them and I gave them the beginning of a story. I gave them this sentence. I still remember the exact sentence. And it's this pretty overwrought, slightly embarrassing thing. But it was, I have seen the colour of time on three occasions. And I said, now write something. And, so, and I wrote with them. And I wrote about three deaths happened, you know, three deaths, and I realised that they were all narrated from the point of view of death. And then I, I went, oh, I might just maybe throw that into that book that I'm setting in Nazi Germany um, about the girl who steals books. And what I then had were these three things, was the stories of my mum and dad. I had death as a narrator and I had a girl stealing books. And if you took any either of those things out, it wouldn't be the same thing. But those three things working in combination, and honestly, I didn't even at the time I didn't even think of book burnings. I didn't even think, oh, death is the perfect narrator because you know people say war and death are like best friends. Yeah, it it was just one of those things that this happened over a period of about a year. You know, to sort of just collate the right ideas to amalgamate and and come together. And then I was sort of ready to start again because I'd written, I'd already written bits and pieces for the book and I just went, mm, that's not it. That's not it. Uh, that's not it either. I spend, that's pretty much my job description is writing something and going, well, that's not it. Uh, I'm <laughs> sort of just continually, continually on this search for something that feels right. And suddenly... What happened was then with the book thief, I wrote. I just came, just it just sort of came, very, uh, you know, just sort of from not from nowhere, but just from being with it. And I, I can still remember those first sentences of first the colours, then the humans. That's usually how I see things. Now, then it said I just I had all of this written, and then one night I was sitting with it again, and then I saw this. I heard this other voice in my head that said, here is a small fact, you are going to die. And I saw that in the very beginning, I saw that in the middle of the page. And when you're seeing things like that and having ideas coming at you like that, it's sort of, you just, you don't ask questions, you just do it. And, and that was how I kind of arrived at the voice of death. And I, I wrote really hard for a month and it was one of the best months of my life. And then I re then I made the mistake of reading over it. And I just went, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and But I had about 200 pages there. And uh, so I at least had something to work with. And I think it's just you're looking for the voice you need. You're just waiting. You know, you, you just... And I had that voice of death, but it wasn't entirely right. And... 
I just needed, you know, another year and a half went by until I found out that death needed to have this kind of vulnerability to him uh, as well. And, uh, and then it all sort of, uh, it, it finally, once I had that, because I thought of the last line of the book, I thought, ah, oh, that's how, that's how to write this book. Death is proving to himself that humans can be beautiful and selfless and worthwhile. That's how you write the book, and uh, and it became the book it did. And I'm still a bit staggered, honestly, by you know that we're talking about it even now. And it was 15 years ago that it came out. I mentioned on Twitter that I was interviewing you this week, and uh, Suzanne Chambers said she uh, she wanted me to ask you what's the central human value of the book thief. Oh. It's funny, sometimes I just have to, I, I'll often just say, I don't know, <laughs> to, to, a, to a, a question that I'm, I'm not quite sure of the answer to. And I think for me, it's that what we're all actually made of is our stories. And the book thief is, you know, about this girl well, it's a, if, I was, if someone said to me, what is that book about? And you spend years trying to figure out what your book is about, or at least how to articulate it. And I finally arrived at this idea that what the book thief is about, it's about the idea that in Nazi Germany, you know, you had Hitler basically, if you, if you distill it all down, Hitler is destroying people with words, and it's about a... A girl who's stealing the words back and she's writing her own story through that ugly world that he's created and it's a beautiful story and so I think to me the book thief is about personal stories and that no matter what's happening around you is that you can carve out the story you know you're still in control of the story that you can carve out um, through this world and uh, so I think that's what is actually at the heart of it and so by starting out by saying, I don't really know, I sort of, I think it just gives me, I'm not a quick thinker. Um, that's why, like, if someone ever asks me to be on, like, on a, a television thing or something, often I'll say no because I know I can't think quickly enough. But, um, it, yeah, but I know, but just winding my way that to the right answer, I think that's what the book thief means to me anyway. So at the age of 30, you'd written five novels and at the age of 40, you'd also written five novels uh, because Bridge of Clay took you 13 years from age 30 to age 43. Um, it's, it's a big work, tightly structured, but uh, uh, not that big. I, I, you know, I was kind of doing the maths on it and thinking, well, 13 years, 130,000 words or so, uh, you're looking at, uh, at, a, at a few words a day, basically, uh, which really speaks <laughs> yeah. to the, uh, uh, the, the power of the craftsmanship. How was that experience of spending your entire 30s writing a book uh, after having churned out a, a book every year or two for the previous decade? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting looking back on that now because... It was a really great time. Uh, it was a really joyful time, that decade. I mean, uh, so it's really interesting that it took 13 years 
to, for that book to come out. And my daughter was 13 when it came out. <laughs> and so I could put all the blame on her, really, if I wanted to. <laughs> it, it was quite funny, uh, you know, when she did basically say, you know, one morning I was sitting across from her as she ate breakfast before she went to school. And, uh, and I said to her, you know, I don't know about other people's kids, but for a long time, uh, even now, my, my children eat like barbarians. And uh, I said to her, could you just keep it down over there? I'm trying to get some work done here. And she's looked over at me and she's gone, you work. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I did, she's then gone off to school and I've thought about that all day until I did work out exactly what you just uh, proposed, which was that I figured out that at that stage I'd basically written 1.9 words per day and not even two if you, if you did it, if you did the mathematics on it. And, uh, and it was, so it was a great time. I mean, that for all that decade, the book thief was just sort of rolling on and on and on. It, so it came out in 2005 in Australia, 2006 America, 2007 England and then all through Europe and Asia and South America. And so I got to go to, you know, one of the, the most amazing things was going to so many of those countries where the book came out and, you know, like places I never thought I would go, you know, as from as disparate as, you know, from Taiwan, China to Norway, Brazil. And so it was like this gateway to the world. And yet at the same time, you know, I wasn't just sitting there going, well, this is fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm on holiday. I was trying to write Bridge of Clay. And, and of course, it, it was originally slated, you know, to be delivered in January 2008, you know, which turned out to being delivered in 2010. And it was just getting more, it, it became ridiculous. And at the, around the 10-year mark, it was, it was my wife who really saved that book. Because she just said, look, I'm giving you one week. I'm giving you one week to, and it wasn't a week to finish. It was a week to just get it, to, to, to be happy again. And, uh, and you know, I've looked at some, I know you, you do some sort of quick fire questions later on and just talking about what makes someone happy. And for me, when the writing's going well, it, it's, you know, that's when I'm at my best and at my happiest. And uh, I don't. You know, people say, oh, geez, you must procrastinate a lot and clean and, you know, mow the lawn or whatever. I say, no, I do all that stuff way better when I'm writing well. And it's probably my biggest, it's not a criticism of Bridge of Clay. It's a, it's to me a hard truth with it. And, and that is that the book thief was an incredibly difficult book to write. Uh, and it was a, and it was a, a huge effort to write that book but it appears as though it was effortless. And, uh, and I think that's what you're hoping and sort of, you know, wanting yourself to do, to, to do as a writer. And with, whereas Bridge of Clay was a huge effort as well, but that effort shows. And, and that's what makes it harder to come at for, for, you know, for some readers. You know, some people really love it and, uh, and understand where it's coming from and what it's doing. And for some people, it's just like, oh, geez, well, that was disappointing. And, you know, and this is all, these are all tough things to hear when you've been spoiled for the last decade by a book that just keeps going on and uh, that, that people seem to sort of fall in love with. And, but it, 
But in that sense, I'm more, much more proud of Bridget Clay. It suits the character of Clay and Matthew, the narrator of that book and that whole family, that, it, that it's not easy. It doesn't give itself away, that book. It doesn't ever uh, say to the reader, I wanted it to, you know, I promise you. <laughs> I, want, you know, I was always trying to find a quirky, easier way for the reader to come at that book, but it just wouldn't allow it. And, uh, and so you have to write true to the voice and feel of the book. And Clay is the sort of character who was carrying his family, you know, on his back. And, uh, and so, and he's carrying also, you know, the burden of memory and what he feels, you know, he's, he's carrying a, a, you know, a pretty big wound as well. And so it really suited that book for it to be a bit tougher. And, and so you always want to remain true um, to the feel and the central feeling of the book or else you can't finish it. And of course, after my wife, you know, said, you've got one week, that week came and went like all the others. And I did have to quit the book for about three months. And, uh, and when I came back to it, it was right. Let's just get the smile back on, on your face and let's make this really simple. If I, I would have one criteria when I was, you know, reading or editing the book, it was like, if it's alive, keep it. If it's dead, cut it off. And, uh, or get it to feel alive in a real hurry. And, uh, you know, and within, and that's the thing is often, and I will shut up in a minute, I promise, <laughs> um, is, is that you, you do all this work and you feel like you've failed and you feel like, oh, well, I just can't get this to work. And then what happens is you, once you've taken a step back from it and you see it sort of fresh again, what I realised is that I'd actually done 97% of the work. I'd, and I'd written 80%, 85 to 90% of the book. It was, it was just finishing it that was just going to take that last bit of courage. And, uh, and without her stopping me, you know, I may still be doing that now. So I'm incredibly grateful to her for that. But there's so much in there that uh, just glistens on the page. Uh, I, I love that line about the coastline of dirty dishes stretching towards the sink. Uh, where does a line like that come from? Do you, do you sweat over it and, you know, is that the product of a couple of hours of staring at the screen or does it suddenly pop into your mind? I love that you picked up that line, Andrew, because uh, that was one of the very first lines in the whole book that I, that I knew... I was going to keep and to me it, but it's it's when I can it's when I feel like I'm there and that's what those sort of lines do for me and it, it's like I remember I can't remember who said it now which I'm a bit dirty on myself for is um, that someone you know a writer or or some somebody else said that that's what novels kind of are and should be is that you're the writer will ask the reader to see the world in a totally different way, yet they completely understand it. Uh, and, uh, and so when I, if I, I'm writing something and that sentence will pop into my head, a coastline of dirty dishes stretching towards the sink, to me I just go, ah, oh, that's why I was writing today. And it reminds me a little bit of, I, like I describe writing as kind of like climbing a mountain that's really difficult, but there's the promise of a sandpit at the top where you just get to play 
And, uh, and so my favourite line from a book is from Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And he, he describes an ocean liner called the Rotterdam coming into New York Harbour. And he says, the Rotterdam came into New York Harbour like a mountain wearing a dinner jacket. And wow. me, I go, oh, that's a writer. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? And uh, like, that's, that's a writer who's done all the hard work and is just sitting in the sandpit playing. And so that's where those turns of phrase come from. And, uh, and it's when you just sort of relaxed a little bit. And I'm always, I think, just on the lookout for that unusual, um, you know, piece of language that, so I don't have, and I think this is really important, I don't have a really big intellect. I don't have, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually not that intelligent and I don't have a huge vocabulary either. I used to think that to write serious books, you know, or to say write books for, you know, adult readers or whatever, that you, you had to have, you know, start to put in, you know, really sophisticated language and words. But what I actually learned is that it's never what you expect is your, is your greatest strength. And for me it was, it's, it was having a pool of words but understanding the limitless, uh, the limitless combinations that you can use those words in. You know, so coast, a coastline of dirty dishes stretching towards the sink to me is, you know, you're always trying to write a book that only you could have written. And when you write a sentence like that, that's one more uh, little part of the book that makes it your own. Another moment in which you seem to be really playing in the sandpit is uh, when you go to name the pets in the household and they're all named after uh, uh, Greek ca characters, uh, Achilles and Agamemnon, uh, and then you get to the dog who's called Rosie and uh, uh, you think, oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. But then it turns out that Rosie is named that way because one of the children has misunderstood the line about the rosy-fingered dawn. Uh, and it is just priceless, Mar Marcus. I, I love that, that way in which you, uh, you, you bring, it, bring it back. Uh, it's, it's one of those, it's one of those things that I was always, I mean, even going back to the book thief, I, I sort of, one of the things that I was kind of proud of, I mean, you really worry about a book, especially when you've just published it, you just worry about all the problems with it. And when people are going to see all the things that are wrong with it, that you know are there, even though you've given it everything you've got, but you've got to let go of it at some point. But I've always sort of at least been that little bit happy with the fact that I didn't just have ideas for a book and then, you know, spit out the seed, you know, just throw the idea down and then it's done because then you wouldn't have those little moments. And it's funny with, I mean, and at one point, like all those, all those animals, they, all those names changed at some point. There was actually another cat called Cyclops. And uh, there was, and then the goldfish was Apollo for a while because I just thought, yeah, and because Agamemnon was just feeling too ridiculous. You're just always, always wanting the the reader to believe it. You know, to, are, are they going to believe this? Do I believe it? And uh, and so even when they just dropped in there at the beginning, you know, for me, there's no mention apart from the fact that. This is all happening when we first meet the pets. It's happening in combination 
with Clay doing this sort of outrageous training for the 400 metre sprint where at, hun at the hun 100 metre mark and the 200 and the 300, there is someone there to stop him from, from running the next 100 metres and he's got to get past them just to make it hard, so hard to run 400 metres that when there's no one in front of him, it'll just feel like, uh, you know, a piece of cake. And so there was this sort of, there was that element of the Greek games, you know, and, and that, but it sort of, for me, came together then when the character of Penelope, the Dunbar boy's mum, comes into the book and then it's said that, you know, she grew up with her dad reading the Iliad and the Odyssey to her. And then for me, I was sort of going, oh, and then that's when you're starting to make those connections between, oh, this family has a history, you know, with the Greeks. And, and Matthew, as narrator, talks about it. It's one of the first things he says is that most people don't think I could string a couple of words together. But, you know, I, I know about the Greeks and the epics. And, uh, and yeah, the Rosie story was just, I don't know how that happened. It just came out of, I guess, climbing the mountain, you know, doing the hard work. And then I thought, ah, oh, there's a little anecdote that one of the kids was getting it wrong. And, uh, and I think Matthew at that point in the book says to Tommy, the youngest, you know, he's, it's, it's the sky, idiot. And, uh, and it's just one of those nice things. And I think it's part of a family history. And that's what that book always felt like to me is that, again, that stories are what we're made of. And, uh, and it's, always, it's always coming back on itself, that book, and it's always referring to itself the way all families are. I think all families have their own secret language and, uh, and that book is, is, you know, giving readers the secret language of the Dunbar family. There is a sort of Australian magic realist feel about it, particularly when uh, Clay is doing that crazy training or when the boys are beating one another to a, to a pulp. Uh, but somehow you bring us far enough in that, uh, that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't seem ridiculous. Uh, I remember you, you said at one point that uh, your early books were books that meant something to you and your last two have been books that meant everything to you. What's that distinction about I think you're always trying to do your best and you're always trying to, and I think you're usually thinking that you're writing, oh, well, maybe I'm, I'm, I, I can't speak for any other writers, but I think early on, you, when you start writing a book, you're just trying to finish one because it's not, it's not the easiest thing to start, let alone finish. And my first attempts at books, you know, when I was 16 years old, you know, all eight pages of my first attempt at a book could be entered into a competition for the worst book ever written. And uh, <laughs> but you, I think you 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 you're trying to emulate your heroes as well, and you basically plagiarise your heroes at the beginning too. And so, uh, as a teenager trying to write my first books, you know, and how lucky I was there too that I figured out what I wanted to do so early. And but you know so. It just, but my first attempts failed really badly, and then I thought, oh, I really want to do. Okay, I want to. I really want to finish one. And by the end of my first year of university, I kind of figured out how to do it. You know, I thought if I've got 130 pages, I've written a novel, and that seemed like kind of the right length, and uh, or or at least the minimum length that you needed. And you, 
And so I think he spent a lot of time figuring it all out. And But to me, there was a difference between writing the, the leap from those first four books, which often I've also described as being my first book and The Book Thief being my second book. And, uh, and it's so funny, I mean, a lot of people say to me, oh, you think Bridge of Clay is my second book, and uh, whereas it's my, my sixth book. And, but they, it felt like those first four books were the training ground for The Book Thief, and then those first five books were the training ground for Bridge of Clay, but there was a lot to learn in between. But, yeah, so I remember often saying that after The Book Thief meaning everything to me, it's, it's just, it, I remember finishing that book and there was something different. And it, it's actually, I'm not sure if it's something I can totally describe, but I'll do my best. And that is that when I'd finished all those other books, I was kind of emotional. But when I, when I finished... And when I finished writing The Book Thief, I was kind of just empty after that. It was, there was just, there was no real thought of, I, there was nothing else that I wanted to do actually at first, even though I knew that Bridge of Clay was waiting for me. You know, it was, uh, Bridge of Clay has always been, you know, that sort of prize fighter. That was always the book that I couldn't write and uh, that I was always putting off. Because I always thought it was my best idea, and then the book thief just sort of blew that out of the water. That idea, and uh, and so when I'd had that feeling of just feeling totally hollowed out, I think I realised. No, and I think I have to say with the book thief too, the very first time I read from that book in public, and it was a little chapter called Confessions, and it's when Liesel confesses to Rudy in the woods. He she shows him the book that Max has been drawing in the basement when she when she's seen Max being taken to Dachau and Rudy sees her reaction to that and she shows him the book and there's a picture of Rudy in there with his medals from the from the sports carnival and he looks at her and he says oh you told him you told Max about me and she says to him and I'm even getting a bit choked up talking about it now and she says to him uh of course I told him about you. And she's actually telling him that she loves him, you know. And and to me, and the fact that I'm even getting a bit teary talking about that now, these are fictional characters, you know, and but they're real as I talk about them. And so I think I, think I just believed those books more. And, uh, and then when I had that feeling with The Book Thief, I, I thought, well, that's it. I have to, I have to hit that mark every time I write a book and I have to do that with Bridge of Clay but I think what gets lost in that thought process within myself is that you can't go in, it can't mean everything to you at all times and right at the very beginning because then you won't write anything and I think that was the mistake with Bridge of Clay uh, at the start was that I was probably trying too hard um, and I remember even as a kid I used to practice throwing the discus and my dad would throw it back to me. And there was one that he would always call out a couple of things when I was trying too hard. He'd say, that one was cramped. And he'd say, you're trying too hard. You know, it's that thing of where you're trying really hard, but you're relaxed as well. And, uh, but I've always joked now that it, how I said, 
you know, now every book I write has to mean everything to me. And after 13 years working on Bridge of Clay, I should probably, you know, I, I thought maybe it's time to go back and just write a book that means something to me. <laughs> At least it might get written a little bit quicker. But I think, I think you should start out with it meaning something to you and then the book will... The book itself is what becomes everything. You can't force it. And, uh, and I think that's what I've learned. That's probably the biggest lesson I learned from Bridge of Clay is that, you know, just relax as well and, and you don't have to make it. It only has to be as perfect as you can make it once and that's when it's on its way to the printer. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect every day. And, and that's what I sort of tell people who ask for writing advice is I just say, you know, just take it easy on yourself sometimes too because, you know, it, 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 you can't, you know, you can't always be, uh, you know, you can't always be totally dedicated. You're going to feel lazy some days. You're going to feel intimidated some days. So take it easy on yourself. The, the measure of it is that you will come back. That's how you know that you really are a writer. You know, that if you're willing to come back and, uh, and you know, I know I have been and that's probably the only thing that makes me a writer. It's not the books. It's not great writing by any stretch of the imagination. It's the fact that I'm always willing to come back to my desk after I've been beaten up a little bit. But it is a particular style of writing too. Uh, I mean, there's a uh, Chicago economist called David Gallinson who splits creators into young conceptualists and old experimentalists, thinking of people like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Pablo Picasso who do their best work uh, driven by a single idea uh, and perform best in their 20s. Uh, alternatively, you've got uh, people like Shakespeare and Mark Twain and Alfred Hitchcock uh, who do their best work later in their career and spend their time tinkering. Uh, and in a novel sense, you know, you think of the, the plot-driven people doing their best work in their 20s and the character-driven people doing their best work in their, their 50s and 60s. Uh, you seem to spend a lot of time particularly uh, changing things around. I understand you even changed the narrator in, uh, in, in Bridge, uh, Bridge of Clay. How do you know when to, when to stop tinkering as, as an experimentalist writer? Yeah, I think it's when you start to forget the previous incarnation. It's so, I, and I, I changed the narrator in The Book Thief too. And it was, you know, originally it was, it was Death as the narrator, then it was Liesl herself was the narrator. And then I thought then that she just sounded, even though my, I have this German-Austrian background, she just sounded too Australian. So there are always, there's always this new problem, you know, and that's like the other thing I say to people is don't think that to be a writer you've got to have a great imagination that, that conjures up this idea of this whimsical character who just sort of floats around and, you know, so-called genius is, is, you know, landed upon them. And no, it's, it's that you have these problems and it holds true, the old cliche that um, necessity is the mother of all invention. And so when I have a problem... I have to get around it or I have to find a way to solve it and that is where my imagination is. And so, yeah, I did have this in both The Book Thief and Bridge of Clay but I, I had this narrator named Maggie uh, who was narrating Bridge of Clay uh, sitting up on the, on the roof of the Dunbar household and I had her for six years, seven years 
and it took me a while to finally let go of her. But then it's when you start not thinking about that narrator anymore or that idea anymore. When you when you when it starts leaving you alone, you know that the new idea is is the right idea. And uh, and it may turn out that that's not the right idea either. It's the one after it or the one after that. And so I I think what what has happened is you know I I've, I think writing gets harder. Uh, but depending, I mean, it could just, it could well be that I, I haven't sat down and just gone, oh, I'm just going to write this one thing for, for fun or whatever it is. But what I've found is I'm not that interested in having fun. And I know there is fun in Bridge of Clay and there's, there's fun in The Book Thief, which is, you know, almost silly to, to conceive of given its setting and, uh, and so on. But, um, but to me, there's got to be that element of, of play in it. And, uh, and so I, I think for me, that's when I know it's working. It's when I'm, when I'm starting to play more than I'm really, really having to work hard on it. But it, it takes a little while or a long while to get there. But you've just got to be, I think you've just got to be willing for it to not work uh, many times before it actually does. And, uh, and, and changing, I mean, everyone had a shot at narrating Bridge of Clay after Ma between Maggie and Matthew, you know, Henry, Rory, Penny from the grave, you know, so even there, and I thought I can't have a dead character narrate Bridge of Clay after I had death narrate the book thief, I'll just become the death guy. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you, you, I mean, but you're prepared to try it because you get so desperate, you know, and, uh, and so having all of these part, these things to it and, you know, that makes it difficult is actually a bit of a blessing because it's the sort of job that's always testing you, you know, and um, it's it's the sort of job that's always testing how much you want it. You, know? you can't get it to work for a day, a week, a month, year, years, or you get rejected by a publisher. This is all there to test how much you really want to do it. And, uh, and I think that's probably what I love most about it. And it probably comes back to what I was, what we were talking about at the very beginning here, which was uh, just that I, I kind of like that I had to, that I wasn't good at things to start out with. And there were always people who were better at it than me. And that made me work for it and enjoy working for it as well. And uh, I'm glad Bridge of Clay took 13 years now, because if nothing else, the story behind the story is a good one as well. Well, you, uh, you very much lived the life of Clay there. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about your uh, characters. In some sense, your ideal character seems to be uh, a working-class person who loves books. Um, you see this a bit in the, in the writing of, uh, of Richard Flanagan. You know, Richard is uh, uh, a... a, a a middle-class middle guy who works uh, with his mind, but he writes much more about people who work with their hands. Uh, are, are people who work with their hands just more interesting to write as characters? I think it, it comes down to sort of what Stephen King talks about in his book on writing, which is in some, there are some, there's a lot you can control as a, as a writer and... There's a lot that you can't, and uh, you know what's actually really funny is I just my son just came in making heaps of noise, so it sort of suits the, the conversation, and uh, so if you hear something in the background, but um, can I know? Steve, yeah, Stephen King talks. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, he um, 
talk, Stephen King talks about uh, how you can't control the sort of the drain that's at the edge of the roof of what you catch. And he's like, well, I just catch horror and, uh, and suspense, whereas someone else, you know, might be catching, you know, character-driven, you know, realism. And, and so for me, it, it's what I seem to be drawn to are, are those sort of characters. And, and I think it's because I grew up with those sort of characters. And, you know, my mum's, you know, being a house cleaner and my dad being a house painter, you know, and they're the people who also made me want to be writers because of their storytelling. And, uh, and I loved going to, to work with my dad and, and my mum. And so it's always felt natural to me and that they were the people who were interesting to me. And I was drawn to that as a reader too. Even talking about, you know, those S.E. Hinton novels were always about kids from the wrong side of the tracks. And, and then you read a book like, you know, Roddy Doyle's The Commitments, which taught me a lot about dialogue. But then again, there, were, there was a, a real work, I mean, a, a, a staunch working classism to that book as well. And so... And I think it, for me, it ties back in again to that idea of not necessarily being that talented or not being that good at things and really having to work for it to appreciate it. And uh, so I think all of those things are kind of wrapped up together. And I think that's why I tend to write about those sort of um, people. And they're, they're, you know, it's what's sort of close to my heart, I guess. You seem to have a, an enduring interest in luck. Uh, there's the cards and the messenger. There's the horses in Bridge of Clay. There's so many serendipitous encounters in your books. Do you think that uh, we sometimes underrate the role of chance in our lives? Uh, I think it's probably more to do with um, just backing yourself, betting on yourself. It, it probably... Uh, and I mean, I guess, especially with the cards in The Messenger and what I was doing to Ed all the time, I was with, with Ed Kennedy, the main character, I was always putting obstacles in front of him you know, and he had to sort of back himself to, to, to get past them. And, but I think, I mean, luck, talk about luck. I mean, my first book and my whole career hinges on the fact that I sent the underdog manuscript to one publisher that I'd sent books to before and had been rejected, but they were the only ones who'd shown any real sort of interest, a publishing house called Omnibus Books, who were a part of Scholastic. And, and that manuscript was read by one of the editors and put on uh, the boss's table and uh, or the boss's desk, and then a whole lot of other manuscripts were dropped on top of it. And, uh, and it sat there on the bottom and sat there and it could easily have just been, you know, and it had a little sticker on it saying, read this one. And, uh, and that sticker may have, post-it note may have come off, you know. And so uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, one of my childhood heroes. Uh, and and I, still really, I still really enjoy his work now uh, was... But loving rugby league, I always loved Sterling, Peter Sterling. And uh, he'd always said, as a commentator, well, he, he said two things, actually. And one was, you make your own luck. And the other was, luck's a fortune. And, uh, and so I think 
you, you, I think you're, you're treading the fine line between the two. And, uh, and so, again, it, I think it comes back to the idea of doing the work, climbing the mountain and playing in the sandpit. It's a bit like do the work and a little bit of luck is sort of not owed to you. And I think that's the other mistake we often make is that we feel like we've done all this work so we goddamn deserve something. Is <laughs> that You may not get it when you deserve it, but you're going to get it at some point. So, um, so I think uh, luck plays definitely plays a part in all of our lives, both good and bad. And uh, my dad has always sort of believed that too. And he's always said, had these sort of platitudes like, I remember failing my first driving test because I, I drove the car up under the gutter because I was so concerned about losing points for not getting it snugly in there. And he said, look, you never know what it's good for. That was another big one for him. He said, you might have got your license now and gone out and had an accident. So uh, I think I just believe in the idea, you know, not being totally fatalistic, but... Uh, or sort of just saying things like, well, everything happens for a reason. I think I would stop short of that. But I think uh, there's a, there is a sort of create creativity in the air. And, uh, and sometimes it's there to test us and sometimes it's, it's there to help us. And, uh, and I think my characters go through a little bit of that as well. Are you willing to share with us what you're working on now? Yeah, well, it's funny, the... And I apologise because I realised just now how many times I've started with, oh, it's funny. Uh, yeah, you should be doing better than that. So I'm always sort of marking myself as well. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that the character I talked about, I've never been secretive about books or what I'm working on. or uh, I've never, you know, that sort of artist idea of, no, you will not see it until I'm finished. For me... I've always liked being an open book about my work and anyone who wants to know, I'll just tell them everything and uh, or as much as they're willing to listen to because, again, I don't feel like an artist. I feel like a tradesman in pursuit of something, you know, of an artwork. And, uh, and so out of the ashes of Bridge of Clay, that character, that first narrator of Maggie, this failed attempt sort of gave me this idea and uh, and I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be but then something happened and that was uh, because I did become interested in in horse racing and you know it's you know it's glamour and it's it's workmanship and it's toughness of the people involved and the animals involved and it's dark side you know it has a, that incredibly dark side as well um, and then I, I saw that I just saw the story about Chautauqua, the racehorse that suddenly stopped jumping out of the barriers, and that gave me the idea uh, for the story. And I thought, is it a novella? Is it a bigger book? Is it a companion to Bridge of Clay? Which I think it is, and it makes. I, I've always said I'd never write uh, a sequel or a companion book to The Book Thief, uh, but but Bridge of Clay feels right because of the way the Iliad and the Odyssey run through that novel, that it has a companion book. And so I do have, I've, I've got my sort of girl and horse book, I think. And, uh, and yet, yeah, earlier this year, I started writing it and I went, well, that's not it. And I think what happens is, because I, I thought I was just going to write it as a novella. And when I say just, 
I, that's not to say that such a thing is easy. Uh, but what I found was I was writing it and I was kind of finding myself disinterested. And that's how I know that it's not working yet. And so you're just waiting for enough sparks to, to start the fire. And, uh, and so I'm ready to sort of get back into it. And it's, it's either going to, at the moment, it's had a couple of different titles. One was The Second Spaniard and uh, one is The Jigsawist. And I'm sort of swaying between the two of those. I, I'll often think, the first things I often think about for a book is the beginning, the end and the title. And I'm always writing towards that title which is why, you know, in a book like The Book Thief, it's always often referring to Liesl as The Book Thief and Ed is often referred to as The Messenger in, in The Messenger and so on. So, uh, so yeah, so that's where I'm, I'm kind of at with that. But I've got, my, I've got my ending and my titles. I haven't quite got the beginning yet. So, uh, but I think I wrote a little bit this morning and, uh, and I've got a really good friend who says, you know, and he's a, he, would, he, he would love me saying this, actually. He, he sort of said, so, look, if you can write 10 lines a day, I think you deserve a, a Jack Daniels and Coke. <laughs> and, uh, and so every night, every, like this morning, like, you know, at 8 o'clock, you know, I was just arguing with my son about his maths homework. And then I, as I was doing that, I wrote a new beginning for, for this new book. And so I texted my mate, who perfectly enough is named Clay, I said, I just wrote 10 lines. I think it's time for that JD and Coke. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's always a bit of a laugh. So but that's kind of where I'm up to. And I'm, I'm not at the point yet where I'm really ready to dive in, in there, but, but it's getting closer. So Chautauqua's home ground was Rose Hill Racecourse. When you're uh, researching a book like this, do you, do you spend a bit of time at, uh, at places like that, just soaking in the atmosphere? Or, or how do you get yourself into the, uh, in, in, into the space to write about uh, something like horse racing? Uh, there are so many answers to that question. I'll go with the fun one first, which is when I realised there was going to be some, some horse racing in, in Bridge of Clay, I went to I went to Randwick that was running that day, and uh, this is back in early two thousand and seven, I think. And uh, I went there and I put a few bets on and whatever, and there, and because I knew I was going to write about a female jockey, uh, I put I found in one of the races Kathy O'Hara was the jockey, and I went, oh okay. I still remember the horse's name was Danewin Lodge. And it was at they were at thirty three to one or something, and I thought oh, I'm just going to put ten dollars on that, and uh, and I thought probably not much chance. I went down just to hear what it's like on the turn when the whole when when the whole field comes together on the turn, and it is quite amazing, even though it was a bit far off at Randwick, and um, and and Danewin Lodge is about six lengths in front of everybody else and uh, I, and it's one of those things too at this point one of my friends rings you know I didn't answer the phone I'm just standing there watching as the, the rest of the field you know basically just churns everything up and kind of looked like overtook Damon Lodge but but they held on to win and so but the odds had gone out to something like 55 to 1 so it was $550 and I made the biggest mistake. I went home to my wife. She said, oh, how did it go? And I just pulled the $550 out of my pocket and showed it to her. 
And she just looked at me, didn't say a word, smiled, reached out, and took the $550. And she said, we need a new washing machine. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, and that to me, I sort of, I stood there and I went, that's research. Um, I, in a lot, there are some things that I'm quite conscious about researching, about researching too much and getting too close. And uh, often it's sort of like in things like the book thief, I don't list, you know, what kind of plane drops, what kind of bomb, you know, it's it, in, in the, you know, on the, the village of Malking. I, I, I kind of, I really want the characters and, and the, you know, I want it to be driven by that. Uh, but in the in this case, yeah, I would definitely, um, I'm really keen to talk to different people, but I also don't want to betray people I talk to in a way where, say, if something terrible was to happen in the book or something, you know, to a character or to something, or, you know, and then I wouldn't want someone that I've spoken to to feel responsible or to to feel like, you know, they've done an injustice to their occupation, let's say. So I'm, I'm also really careful and uh, because I want to research, you know, with absolute integrity as well. So it's, a, it's always that fine line between fact and fiction because you're always, you're always sort of merging the two uh, when you're writing a novel as well. Marcus, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, uh, I think it would just be to to my teenage self. I'd just say it's okay that achievements don't necessarily come easy to you. That's going to be your greatest strength. And despite all of these achievements, you've uh, I understand never seen someone reading one of your books in public. Is that still true? No, and even better than that, even better than that is that we were on a plane once, and my wife just nudged me and she said, oh, there's someone reading The Book Thief over there. And, of course, when I looked over, uh, she wasn't reading it anymore. <laughs> she had put it down. So not even that counts. It just doesn't count. And, uh, and then later on I looked over and she was asleep. <laughs> so what does that say? So that keeps you hungry for the next success. Exactly. Uh, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that... I was in some way better than my brother because when we played rugby league, I would go out there and just bust my backside and try my very best no matter what every week, week in, week out. And I for some reason, you know, thought that, that that was kind of better and stronger than what my brother was doing, which was my brother was this great talent. And, uh, but if he didn't feel like playing that day, he just didn't. He just didn't do anything, <laughs> you know. And, and I. And now. I, and at the time, I was just like, "You're wasting everything, and you're you're throwing, you know. And don't you? You just don't you care? And uh, and I realised that so many of my efforts were not for myself; they were for other people. And uh, you know, they were, and they were for that idea of what other people would think of me. And so now I, I've at least learned to look at it a different way, which is to sort of admire my brother for making that kind of stand and saying, yeah, no, well, today is just not the day. And, uh, and, I, and you know what? You can all say whatever you want. And, Dad, when I get home and you say something like, you know, next week I'll give you a yo-yo, it'll give you something to do out there, 
that's even better. So I, I think I've, I've, <laughs> I've learned to look at courage and, uh, you know, and effort differently as well and to try to see it from a few different angles. But, yeah, that, and that to me is a big one in terms of, you know, no longer believing something that I believed in. And, and it's, given, it's shed new light on how mm. to, to sort of understand my brother and, uh, and, and the way he goes about things, which I love. And certainly comes through in Bridge of Clay. Uh, when are you most happy? When I'm writing well and sticking to my writing routines. <laughs> routines are just kind of everything. I wanna, I wanna, I'm happiest when I'm writing well and writing as I should be and not, you know, worrying too much about it. You know, these days I think to myself, you can worry or you can work. And I'm happiest when I feel like I could roll out of bed in the morning and land in the world of the book I'm writing. Um, because as a writer, you, that's what you do. You live in the two worlds, the, the world we're all living in and the world that, that you're making in, in the Are you happy during the editing process? I understand you spend a lot of time reading your words out loud. Yeah, I, I, it's confronting and editing is difficult, but it's, it's the sort of, it's, it's really rewarding work it's uh and and you can spend you know months on on an edit and depending when and how you edit i think often i'm guilty of editing a bit too early and wanting everything to be right today you know let's get this right now and so i remind myself that editing is uh is there to to test you and there were that's what makes the book any good at all and i remember in Bridge of Clay, there's a description at one point of Penny Dunbar's underwear. And then I, I must have tried 40, between 40 and 50 words, you know, ranging from, it started as broken. And uh, I'd overused that word already. And I must have gone through 40 or 50 words until finally I, I, I arrived at, at the correct word. And you know what, this is probably showing that there has been some healing uh, since the beating that Bridge of Clay gave me. But this particular moment, I can't remember what that word is. So it's definitely time to move on because I know it's, I know it's not scrappy. But, and I know that I could find the exact right page and, and, and tell you now, but maybe it's better not knowing just for this moment. I, uh, try, I, and I'm trying to, trying to remember as well. It's... Uh, <laughs> Old and was it scruffy? It's scruffy. It is because you know the word that was coming to me, and I, I applaud you. That is amazing that you got that. And I wasn't even and trust me, I wasn't trying to, <laughs> I wasn't trying to test you either. Uh, but it is. It's scruffy, and because scrappy was coming to me now, and I thought it's not scrappy. It wasn't scrappy. It wasn't scrappy. Scrappy was one of the words. But then when I arrived at scruffy, what it did was it was that word that took what that did what I was talking about earlier, where you're trying to deliver an image of the world in a totally unique way that no one's ever read before and yet they recognise it. Because when I came up with that, when I woke up in the morning and that word was in my head and I went, ah, oh, that's it, scruffy. And what it did then was it took me back to my childhood and seeing our clothesline. And 
it was one of those great, it's one of my favourite sort of images is, you know, there's a shirt and there's a jacket, but then there's all this crappy underwear, <laughs> you know, that's basically hanging on for its life. And, uh, and when I saw that image from using the word scruffy, I knew it was the right word. But well done, Andrew, you've got me on that one. Well, it's a word we use so much more for animals than things, uh, which is which is yeah. why it's sort of it feels like such a jewel when you use it in that context. Yeah, I, and it's yeah, and it's that unusual uh, quality to it again from earlier, where I was saying yeah, you don't like Scruffy's not um, a, a great, a hugely in, intellectual word, not in the you know far from it, but in that combination of of the other words in the sentence and the environment that you're putting it in, it comes to life. And, uh, and so, yeah, suddenly, yeah, that, that small vocabulary of mine becomes useful. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy, Marcus? Well, I used to refer to, the, we had these two wild dogs and we're down to one now. And, uh, and I used to, a couple of things I used to say about them. One, when people say, oh, they're beautiful dogs, I'd say, yeah, they've ruined my life, but um, in the best possible way. And so for me, you know, a decade of walking two wild dogs and running with them, uh, I would always, that was the second thing I, I said, that, that they were great personal trainers. And that to me is best summed up when someone said, when you walk your dogs, you should listen to podcasts and you should listen to things, you know, to pass the time. And I'd say, I don't need to pass the time. That's my, that's my dreaming time, you know, where I get to, you know, I just work subconsciously on, on my work and, uh, and at the same time I'm, I'm getting exercise. So I'll often say to people, yeah, get a dog. They're the best personal trainer in the world. Finally, Marcus, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, it's definitely my wife in, in, in so many ways. And, uh, you know, she's, she's done that thing that I think is very difficult for people to achieve in that she's got me to think about things that I didn't want to think about. And... Uh, and sort of persisted and, and got me there on, you know, on all sorts of things, but particularly, you know, when it comes to, to animals and how we think about animals and how we treat them and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and of course, I'm, I'm open to everybody's thoughts on that, but she's been particularly uh, important for me on that one. And, uh, you know, as well as many other things, and she got me to finish Bridge of Clay and, uh, that was no small task either. Well, we are a great debt for, uh, for that as, uh, as well as much else. Uh, Marcus Suzak, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Uh, nothing but a pleasure, Andrew. And uh, having listened to previous ones, I know I'm in great company with both your guests and uh, especially with you. So it's been an honour. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this chat, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Morris Gleitzman, Peter Fitzsimmons and Sasanke Mimsang. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, 
healthier and more ethical life.